Welcome to the podcast. Today on the podcast, we have first time ever Arnold Pena and Shane Snyder from American Emergency Response Training. How are you guys doing this afternoon? Good, man. Doing great, Mark. Thanks for having us. No worries. Um, so before we start, why don't we start with you, Shane, just who you are, what your background is, that sort of jazz, and we'll jump over to Arnold. Yeah, uh, my name is Shane Snyder. I started doing cave rescue and emergency response back in the mid-90s. I currently am a full-time employee with American Emergency Response Training. Um, I worked part-time in the fire service for about 14 years. I've worked for 20 years as a river guide and I'm a Sprat technician. And I just work regularly, probably 125 to 140 days a year teaching industrial rescue classes now around the country and tower rescue and some various rope access classes as needed. But I've been in emergency service uh, I think I started in 1995, so that's pretty much it for me. Back when the brake rack was cool. That's right. <laughs> we had a screw linked on our harness, man. Uh, and Arnold, you? Yeah, so my name is uh, Arnold Pena. I started into the uh, emergency business in 1987 with the Volunteer Rescue Squad doing VR and running first response medical calls. Um, started going to rope training, became a passion of mine, so... Um, that led to obviously EMS and fire in the background, but, but rope being a passion. I started with the American emergency response training company kind of almost before the company started. And uh, I think probably, I don't know, 93, 94 ish, something like that. Um, spent my career on a fire truck, 28 years as a firefighter paramedic. Uh, we did not do technical rescue surprisingly enough. Uh, sorry about the text thing bopping in there. Oh, it's going to happen. On um, too. <laughs> yeah, okay. So, Anyway, um, yeah, the working for the training company has been a great thing. Um, I work as a part-timer because I spent most of my time being full-time at the fire department. Uh, since then, retired and now stayed pretty busy, not quite as busy as Shane, probably 80 to 90 days um, on the road training um, industrial facilities and whatnot, just like Shane. Uh, we've had our Sprat for 12 years or so. I'm just a Sprat 1. Shane just recently got his Sprat 2. Um, and that, that's pretty much it, just raising kids and hanging out in the middle of the mountains in Nevada, man. There you go. Um, you know, I was going to start with uh, Battleship and that, but I just remembered something just with your intros, which is great why we do this. Both your background is caving. And can you just real, you know, let's have a chat about what caving has brought into the technical rescue world, like at the industrial side. Have you seen things come across or is it a totally separate discipline? I'll let Shane take it. Yeah, it... <clears throat> There, you know, at first there wasn't a ton of bleed over. Uh, a lot of the a lot of the access and caving, especially recreational caving, is just done on one rope. A lot of those ropes are smaller diameter. Uh, the types of descenders and climbing systems that you use could vary with the region uh, or what folks are familiar with. I, what I noticed was that the skills that you use when you're caving, which is a lot of, at least in Tennessee, we have over 10,000 caves in our state. So it's a lot of, could be a lot of repelling, a lot of crawling, negotiating tight passages. And from a recreational standpoint, those skills uh, were very beneficial when we, or at least when I started doing industrial confined space rescues in confined areas. So we were able to use a lot of those techniques um, in our industrial classes. Now, as far as the rescue bleed over, 
we we have adopted some single rope techniques in our battleship class and and some of that stuff was bleed over from uh, some of the cave rescue stuff that we've done and we apply those principles uh, in various situations where it may be needed or maybe um, maybe not optimal to run a second rope system but there are definitely some some things that are beneficial from a caving background that are utilized for confined space rescue Mark, I think from the cave and cliff environment, we brought as a beginning personal skills into industrial rescue, where I think industrial rescue, when we started, was always looked at as a team-based system. And we've promoted personal skills from the get-go and still do to this day. And I think that's a game changer for teams. No, absolutely. And I mean, I guess the other big one that I've been introduced with through American Emergency Response Training and you two gents in particular is the bash kit for confined space. The one you want to take a little run on what that is and how it came about. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, following the cave background concept, um, I guess maybe today recognized as small party rescue. It was, it was meant to be something small that you could advance into maybe multiple drops and still have a small gear cache with you was kind of the idea. So we just kind of made an industrial version of it. That probably introduced the first smaller diameter ropes, leaving 11 and going down to something smaller and smaller gear, um, just so you could still achieve lift and maybe gaining access. That's kind of been the idea. We're slowly, I guess, evolving that name into Spark. That, what's it stand for? I read that. Yeah. Small party access rescue kit. Asket, access rescue kit or something like that. But anyway, yeah, that was the idea. It's pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's got a lot of traction. And I know even with our folks that come back, they, they quite uh, enjoy that idea. And we run a couple of similar kits now as well. And I guess that leads right into the battleship. Um, it's 20th year was this year, correct? That's correct. So because of COVID, that was the only miss we had. Yeah, well, those are two years of our lives. We're never getting back. It's just this void, isn't it? Um, what about, so like just the background on the battleship, the, the what, when, where, why, how of it? Let's go with that to start with. So we, we did a lot of work on the East Coast. Uh, we had a specific job in South Carolina. And honestly, we were coming back from that job, you know, over 20 years ago and saw a billboard about the USS North Carolina battleship in Wilmington. And, you know, just having one of those chats after work, like, wow, it'd probably be a cool place to have a class. Um, so that's kind of what started it out. And then th it started out a little bit on the normal side, typical 40 hour program and whatnot. And as it became more popular, Shane and I wanted to kind of put a, a concept into it that both of our trainings originally started with a company called AMSAR, which eventually evolved into Peak Institute. Um, but it was kind of an immersion based training where you spent time in the Joshua Tree Desert, you know, no cell phone contact. Um, you were in a tent. You spent pretty much the whole time with your instructors. They provided food. It was it was just nothing but rope rescue from from the time you woke up to the time you went to bed. Depending on what level you were in, they would even wake you up out of bed to go run calls. Um, so I thought that was a neat thing, and it was just a massive, massive immersion. So we've tried our best to evolve the battleship into that to create that long hour concept, doing nothing but rope rescue, whether it's you know during hours, after hours, the whole thing and really try to push people to an extreme, whether it's sleep deprivation or overload of information, whatever, and then still see them perform at the end. I, the biggest thing I think that always produces is that these people put in you know, anywhere from 70 to 85 hours and graduate with massive smiles on their face at the end of the week because you have a true feeling of accomplishment after going through this thing. 
And I'll have to agree with that. I mean, I know we sent a couple of, I call them our kids down there this year and, you know, they rave about it. It's, you know, reignited the spark in them for rescue. They want to put a grim team in. They want to come back to the battleship. So, I mean, you've certainly done that. And I like it too, because nobody else does it. You know, it goes against the grain of everything that's right. It's long hours. It's, we do silly stuff, you know, it's, and we play loud music. It's crazy. So, and I mean, that's one of the questions I wanted to throw right out there. I mean, there's been conversations in the past with individuals about that. That's not a good learning environment that that's, you know, dangerous. I mean, I've heard say, what's your thoughts on that? I mean, you've been doing this for a number of years now. Is there, as to quote you, where's the stack of bodies? That's exactly right. Yeah, so the, the warm and fuzzy training environment is not something that we necessarily got to grow up in. We were pretty much thrown to the wolves when we were kids and got put through the hardships. And I totally get that the perfect training environment, you know, is pristine and an absence of probably weird things to say and whatnot. But I like the extreme version of it. I like pushing people a little bit harder. We want to try to get the information across. Um, we typically bring no less than nine to 12 instructors to that class. We usually have almost two instructors per student most of the time. So we have a pretty good coverage as far as the safety factor goes. But we are trying to put these people in extreme situations on purpose. We don't want it to be warm and fuzzy. We want it to be intense. We want it to be loud. We want it to be crazy that hopefully we can instill that concept in them and make them perform better in stress situations. It's the whole idea. And this year for the first year for the 20th anniversary you guys came up with a level two program could you talk a little bit about what that is and what what the concept of it is yeah it was that was ultimately shane's idea i'll let him do it we uh we wanted to offer something to the folks that had graduated the previous course and i you know this is kind of part of what you were asking a minute ago mark where it was like it's it's painful to think about where we were 20 years ago uh, from an equipment standpoint, from a technique standpoint, from, from a mindset standpoint, in terms of how we approached rescue on the battleship then and how we approached rescue on the battleship now. And I, we really didn't focus a ton then on personal skills. There was a lot of heavy equipment. We were all wearing really big, heavy harness, harnesses, with big helmets. And uh, the personal skill part of it obviously was a very small component, but as it's grown, and people have kind of gone off to other trainings and stuff. And, and we've, we've kind of grown into the, the modern equipment uh, gear cache and with personal skills. And I would, I would pay a lot of homage to rope access for a lot of the stuff that goes on now at the battleship too, in terms of the individual skills. But we wanted to give something back to the students that had been there before. We wanted to think about lighter weight kits. We wanted to think about moving these patients in extreme environments with a smaller group of people, lighter and smaller gear, smaller diameter rope, where we have a higher skilled technician doing more of the work. So it's less about horsepower and it's more about kind of using your smarts and having a problem solving cap capability and being able to work together in a small group to achieve the same goal. So, you know, uh, inviting people back that have been previous graduates of level one has been a huge thing. And, you know, we had a lot of interest in it and we still had some slowdown from pandemic stuff because a lot of the folks that were graduates uh, were still on some kind of a travel ban. But we ended up with a great group of guys this year. We got a ton of stuff done and we continued to capitalize on this personal skill set. Uh, we even ran um, 
a number of scenarios with like super low manpower where we're trying to achieve these rescues with maybe just two or three people, uh, given, given the number of people that were in the class. But that's kind of where it blossomed from. We're hoping that this thing will just continue to grow as it moves forward. I, I'll add to that, Mark. Um, you being a graduate of the battleship was super cool to come back, and we're very happy to have you as a guest instructor for the Level 2 programs, hopefully from now on. So I thought that was an awesome addition, um, bringing a whole new outlook to the battleship that's not 100% AERT, you know? I, I really enjoyed it. I do find it to be – I mean, I, I don't want to give away all the secrets and the sauce, but <laughs> some of the best confined space rescues you'll do. And, I mean – that part where you mentioned about that caving background and moving through confined spaces. I think a lot of fire rescue folks and even the rope access, you know, we're on a pen stock right now. We might have 800 feet between holes, but it's a straight shot, you know, and I guess the only hint I can throw out there is try having a hundred feet between holes, but it's not a straight shot. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Multiple drops, weird spaces. Um, you know, and it's, I don't know, it, 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 it kind of reminds you of caving in steel. I've always kind of said that the ship definitely offers unbelievable geography. Um, the blend, I guess, maybe part of the issue that we've had is we have industry, you know, trying to get approval to come. And it's somewhat it, hard for them to understand why they need to go to a boat if they don't work in the boat business. Right. So, like you said, it just offers some geography that I think is harder than most. So we kind of go with the concept of if you can do this, you should be able to go back and other things should be easy. That's kind of the way we look at it. One of the things we were trying to do too, and it was this was a big part of the level two program was, and there are some programs out there, uh, some very good programs that focus on leadership. And I think what we wanted to instill in the level two uh, graduates of the battleship this year was that they would get an opportunity uh, to kind of understand, you know, based on their previous experience with level one, their, the skill set of the level one, and let's call them a practitioner. And then we gave the level two folks an opportunity to manage those folks uh, in a couple of scenarios, which gives them, you know, or kind of puts them in more of a leadership role, which for some people can be kind of a challenge. So kind of forcing them uh, to be in charge and manage other folks under a command structure was really another component to the ship that I felt like was had a lot of value. No, absolutely. And I mean, it's, uh, I think just to reiterate with what Arnold said as well is you got to go out of your natural everyday environment to get that kind of level of training. It's, you need the new anchors, you need the new experiences, you need the new challenges to do that. And I certainly think that you guys have you know done well with that with the battleship. Cool. Um, so before we dump the battleship completely, what's the dates for it in 2023? I know it's up there, but this will be getting released in a couple of weeks. So we might as well throw it out there again. Right. Yeah, it's always the third, pretty much the third week in January. I'm pulling my calendar right now so I can look ahead just to make sure I give the right ones out. Um, I want to say it was the 23rd to 28th. That kind of sounds correct to me. But I'm guessing I'm not looking at a calendar right now. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. I'm going to look just to make sure. Uh, yeah, it'll kick off actually on the 22nd this year and go to the 28th. There you go. Yeah, so when we're going to run level two again uh, with the level one program, so it's, it's currently open for bid. We actually have quite a few buy-ins already, but I think I still have a few spots left, and we're doing some makeups for the people that didn't get to come from COVID last year, so. 
There you but go. Yeah, jump in, jump in it, man. We'd love to have everybody. It's it's always a fun class when we get a wide variety of people from across the country. Right on. Um, to change gears a little bit, social media. I know Arnold <laughs> in particular. Shane's laughing in the background already. Shane doesn't even. <laughs> Shane doesn't participate at all. <laughs> you know what? I'm there when all the posts go out, and I'm usually there when the pictures get taken. So I, I can I can always like add my my two cents in the background. But no, it's it's totally Arnold posting it. You know what, Shane? I mean, if I could get out of social media at this point, I think I would. Except for all of these <laughs> business accounts, right. I have to have a personal account attached to them. Right. Uh, it is its own animal, and so you're let's call it infamous in the, in the rope rescue world right now. That's what I hear. I don't understand it. And uh, for some of the posts and what, why don't I, instead of me trying to put words in your mouth, let's throw them out there. What's, what's the background? What's the, what's the reason for the posts? So I guess um, as we were coming into the first level two battleship class, uh, Shane and I talk often about anchors um, being uh, well, something we see problematic with any student or with any up and coming rescuer trying to make that decision. So what I offered is that, hey, we could take some pictures and throw them out to the world and try to get some feedback to kind of see what everybody else thought about. That's kind of how it started. And the idea is that I was going to put these pictures out and I was going to gather information and maybe make some kind of a presentation, um, you know, towards the battleship, maybe in part of the level two anchoring program. And then what I realized is it turned into quite the animal because I think most people don't really see Anchorage the way Shane and I see Anchorage. Um, but I totally get it. I mean, I kind of understand that if you grow up with an engineered designated anchor point for all your training, that's one school of thought. Um, we also understand completely as a training entity, we don't want to steer anybody towards lightweight or questionable Anchorage. Everybody wants the bomb-proof golden thing. But we also take a dose of reality. And I think any of us that are in the rescue business would, would agree that anchors, the golden I-beam or the perfect bomb-proof anchor is not always in front of the rescue. So you find yourself reaching a little bit deeper. Um, the other passion that kind of goes with it too is that our evaluation process is based off 30 years of experience from Shane drilling holes in rock and caves, um, you know, tying to loose aggregate possibly on a cliffside somewhere. Um, all the way from my life of demolition, from taking apart everything, wood and metal or lifting that you can pretty much imagine or, or trees involved with that too. So it's not just a shot in the dark. It's a pretty experienced take on it. Um, I guess what I've realized when I throw stuff out there, it probably becomes more of a spectator sport and only a handful of people comment. Um, it doesn't seem to be a whole lot of positive feedback or reactive feedback. It's just more about I don't like that or it doesn't make sense to me type kind of thing. I don't feel like we do anything unsafe, but we definitely use a lot of questionable anchors, but we also have pretty deep discussions about every questionable anchor we tie to. And I guess knock on wood, we haven't broken anything yet. Of course, I've been schooled numerous times on it. Just because I got away with it doesn't mean it's okay. So, you know, I don't know. I'm not where I'm at with it right now. Uh, before I throw the next question out for you, Arnold, I have one for Shane. <laughs> When Shane, when I met you many, many, many years ago, you were always introduced as a rope purist. Do you still maintain that? And if so, what does that mean to you? I'm not really sure if I know who introduced me that way. <laughs> <laughs> 
<clears throat> I've been introduced as a rope master before, which was total BS, but no, I, no, I, um, the very first rescue class that I, formal rescue class that I ever took was with American Search and Rescue, which was a group of very fine instructors, which ultimately became the cadre of people at Peak Rescue. And you know, one of the things that got instilled to me kind of early was clean rigging, con you know, concepts about not overcomplicating things when it ever possible. And they, you know, even very early on, it, it taught me a lot about alignment. It taught me a lot about, you know, kind of the purity of keeping things simple and without overcomplicating things when they don't need to be complicated. Um, so I, I, you know, I don't, I'm not able to live like that completely. There's some environments that I work in where I have to kind of get outside of a lot of my comfort zone and maybe even the comfort zone of others uh, just simply because that's the situation I've been put in. Um, but no, I, I do feel like there is a purity to this. And I think that, you know, it goes back to the social media thing where people wouldn't respond to posts on social media if they weren't passionate about something. Now, some people can, you know, respond negatively because they don't believe or necessarily agree with what you're doing. But I think, you know, the fact that people are kind of engaged in it is part of that that rope purity or that purest and rope rescue. Okay. That's, that's good. I like that. Um, and then I guess the last one, and either one of you could take a jump at this and it has to do a little bit with like the social media, for instance, the anchoring, but I know some of your teradapter setups have made infamous as well. I mean, there's engineers using them in pictures of fishing poles and um, how did that come about? I mean, as far as teradapter use, you're one of the best companies I know out there for, you know, the knowledge around that and what that particular device will do. It's, a pretty, that? it's a pretty interesting story we have about our introduction to the teradapter. As our company was up and coming, we, we realized that it was time to leave the industrial AHD or tripod concept and move to a rescue tripod. We were going to do exactly like everybody else does and buy an Arizona Vortex. It was the tool that was on the market at the time. Um, we show up at uh, one of the Eiders presentations. It might have been Denver, I think. And SMC, the reps were fresh there with it. We knew those guys. We drank beers with them. We got invited up to a bedroom, and there was a pterodactyl set up over a bed, which was a really weird experience to go through. <laughs> for the most part. But, uh, I got this. To, wait a second. <laughs> <laughs> But we, but you know, that was my first dose. I got to see it for the first time. And luckily it just so happened that we made our first purchase was a teradapter as opposed to a, a vortex. So it, it became my puppy. I was a Lego kid. I was a tinker toy kid, you know, growing up. And I, I became very passionate about what the possibilities were with that thing. Um, getting to spend some time with the original engineers, Donnie Nose and those other guys, Garen, that they were part of that process. They let us in on some inside information and I'm not going to tout that I have any full-blown physics studies or understand the true breaking point of that tool. Um, but again, my dad was a machinist. I got to do a lot of construction throughout my life. And I have a pretty good concept of what metal will do for the most part. So maybe that's given me a little bit more forgiveness to try to push a little bit further on what the possibilities of configurations can be, um, reaction forces, everything else. So I get it that people are usually uncomfortable and I'm sure rich for the most part, I've had to do a few conference calls with him for pictures that have been posted. You know, I get it. 
Um, but we do try to make sure we provide secondary points of attachment if I'm doing really something really weird and or provide the suspension necessary, you know, to make the thing functional. I think it's a great, a great tool. Um, a lot of the weird pictures that you speak of aren't necessarily for rescue scenarios. They're usually training sessions specific to the Teradapter where we have run through the book and done everything the way it's supposed to be done. Um, I do believe in having a little bit of fun during the training and letting somebody work outside the box and push things to the limits. To me, you do create a fun environment as long as it's kept safe. And as far as I'm concerned, it's well within a safety realm. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that stuff again with social media. I know we've taken a few hits, you know, doing some cantilever stuff. And then I posted the uh, torque calculations for what I had done after that. And I, there was not a response. Like, it's like I went totally silent on the thing. Everybody kind of just went, right. well, you know what? I, we're not going to comment on this at this point. <laughs> so in the, the, immortal, the immortal words of Don Enos, you know, I kind of follow his. It's like, whenever I get a tube that doesn't straighten back out, I went too far. That's what I follow. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Um, so what's next for Rope Rescue? Where do you two see Rope Rescue moving? Like, what's going to be the next thing? What's the next training bound that needs to occur? I don't know, man. I think I, I'm still pretty passionate about, you know, everybody seems to be jumping on board with personal skills, and I think that's a great thing. Um, I think aramid fibers are obviously a, a thing that's going to be new. I think the edge, edge concepts or capabilities of rope will extend. I see diameters getting smaller, and I see gear lightening up, kind of what we've seen throughout our whole, whole life. Um, there's obviously a breakover point where we can't just go super small and rely on 100% tensile strength. There's still going to be some beef involved or some mass. That's kind of what we were always taught from the caving environment. Um, but I think, you know, obviously higher efficient policy pulleys, pulleys and DCDs have become huge. Um, we kind of grew up being a piggyback type kind of mechanical advantage crew. So the pulleys were never a big deal to us. Um, we still use a non-pulley DCD for the most part. We're probably one of the last standing people that are doing it. Um, we'll probably absorb that information as time goes on. Uh, we are very excited about seeing like the eight millimeter clutch hit the market. I think that's what I'm excited about. <laughs> <laughs> April Fool's. That's a great question. obsolescence on some of that stuff. Yeah, that's a it's great like, question. Um, I, don't, I, I kind of feel like it. we'll continue to expound on this you know, emergent patient where with life threats and what the single rope technique possibilities are for extraction in certain environments where we're able to maintain control. That's one of the things. And I, I, I would offer too that the, one of the things I think that we, that we could actually stand on is that, uh, you know, the focus of any training shouldn't be the shiniest, newest trinket in the bucket. It should be more about the core competencies that it takes to get the skill done. And that means that if I don't have whatever that trinket is, then I should have a technician or a practitioner there that's capable of lowering a load with a munter hitch or lowering a heavy load with a super munter and making sure that it's a functional, capable system of sustaining the forces that are applied to the rescue system that gets built. Now, I'm, I'm all about shiny trinkets. And if I could wish for one right now and I could hang it on my harness and taught it at every trade show between now and Christmas, it would be a rig that had a high efficiency pulley in it, mostly aluminum and super lightweight that would go in and dominate the 11 millimeter market. Um, it, it can't happen, 
and uh, you know, at least not right now, but I think there's some great equipment out there and people have really focused on making stuff better for, especially for teams that, you know, respond from a, an industrial gear cache or a truck and they're able to put this equipment in their system and, and make very efficient systems. But, you know, if I don't have that equipment, can I still pull the rescue off? I guess that's kind of the key question here. Kind of goes back to that purist mentality. That's true. That's yeah. what I know. <laughs> I do want a tear adapter that'll articulate beyond 90 degrees and something <laughs> I can connect the feet together because that'll open a new door for me. But I don't think I'm going to see that anytime soon. Well, you never know. Harkin bought SMC now. You got to. That's right. Yeah. That door. <laughs> yeah, there's going to be a high efficiency clutch and a handle built into a tear adapter. It's going to be cool. Uh, um, do you gentlemen still caving? Yes. Not so much for me. I'm pretty much done with that. Arnold, Arnold's in, uh, mostly in Nevada now at his new home in Eureka. But no, yes, we've got, uh, I've actually got a cave project that I've been working on a little bit here recently. It's kind of a secret thing though. So, um, <laughs> so but, don't yeah. mention it on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> My life is pretty much mountain search and rescue now. So um, just to go back where we started, I guess, is with the caving, has the skill sets and the equipment changed much in caving, Shane? Like, have you seen the same changes that we've seen in the industrial or fire rescue rope access type world? Have we seen those changes hit caving or because of the environment in caves, is it still break bar racks and SRT and that sort of stuff? You know, it's a matter of preference that as far as the changes go, you know, there's been some, there's been some technology upgrades with, with, uh, you know, a number of different things, but, you know, we're still kind of caving in a very, you know, a very bikini style harness that doesn't have a lot of things that get snagged on, especially in small passages. You know, we're, I, I have noticed that, you know, when I started, almost everybody was using 11 millimeter rope. There is a lot of smaller diameter rope stuff being done now. Um, but as far as the climbing systems, no, I mean, it's really kind of dealer's choice. I mean, you got folks that were really spun up on a Texas climbing system or, you know, the, the, uh, the higher percentage of people that climb with a frog, if you're doing a long drop, you might have a rope walker on. I mean, yeah, back when we started caving, there were a lot of people climbing with Mitchell systems. But, uh, the, you know, the modern equipment has kind of trickled into caving. You know, none of the descent control devices that are on the market right now uh, that include some kind of a baller, whether it's an ID or an MPD, you know, if you take those into a cave environment where the rope is muddy and sandy, none of those are going to be beneficial uh, in terms of, you know, building a rescue system. So you'll see a fair number of folks that use scarabs and then break bar racks are still kind of a common thing. Uh, on our cave team at home, we, we, it's not uncommon for us to use a stop, a pencil stop um, as a progress capture device. We, you know, it depends on the situation. We might even be using a munter hitch if we've got the proper rope and the situation calls for it. But um, as far as industrial rescue, you know, we're heavily impacted by the equipment. And in recreational caving and in cave rescue, um, there's still kind of a purity to that where a lot of that modern equipment just isn't either suitable or hasn't been uh, adopted as a common practice in cave rescue. Interesting. So it's still kind of back to the basics there, just because of geography and, you know, the what's going on, I guess. Yeah, I, I'll never forget this. I, I took so when we first started using the Petzl ID, I think 2008, 2008, 2008 2009. Yeah, 2008, 2009, whatever. 
And uh, I was curious. So I had some buddies that were like, hey, let's uh, let's go over to a cave, a pit, 130 foot pit. It's called Mitchell Hollow Well. And uh, I was like, you know what? I'm going to take this pencil ID over here and I'm going to see how it does. Well, you know, we had regular PMI pit rope and we had rigged a rope to go into the cave. And I actually put that pencil ID on the rope. And I realized rather quickly that even though the rope wasn't muddy and it didn't have a ton of sand on it, with that very rigid rope, it just didn't work hardly at all. I mean, it kept pulling back into panic and it, it just wasn't a pleasant repel. And I remember getting to the bottom and I was like, you know what? This is a great piece for rescue or rope access outside, but this is not a piece to be used in here in this environment. And that environment is actually not even, you know, a very harsh environment itself. But no, I, I think I think what you see historically in caving now, and even with canyoneering, is a lot of people are still using racks or mini racks on really long repels. Uh, when it becomes shorter repels, it's pretty much dealer's choice at that point. Uh, I've, I've seen many things over the years, stuff that was custom made in people's garage. I mean, there was there was a device called a Morphite back in the day that a lot of Virginia cavers had a guy that was, a, you know, he was basically a machinist had made and those kind of floated around for a while. But I think we're, we're, we're still kind of behind in terms of technology with regard to where we are in general industry and rope access. Now, do you think one of you or the other of you can answer this, that, you know, you kind of alluded to it, perhaps the trinkets have pushed the industrial rescue, fire rescue world too far one way, and we've taken the technical out of it? I think there's there's a, there's always a potential for that, um, that I don't want to see a rescue team, like Shane said, be trinket driven to be able to achieve their task. Um, but if I go back to my roots, whether it be woodworking or mechanics or metalwork, I do agree with quality tools and the best tool to do the job. Um, and I've kind of always grown up that way and been that way. So I don't want to have to work harder if there is a tool that will actually help me get it done. So I think there is a happy medium there, Mark. I don't want to see anybody obligated to that single tool. Um, if we have time with all of our students, we always try to make sure they have a basic concept all the way down to Munner and basic thoughts, even, even maybe a prusik here or there. Um, and then at the same time, be able to uh, get efficiency, time, and maybe quality function out of the new shiny trinkets. Mark, you got, you got time for a question? You, I got a question for you. Okay, yeah, sure. Knock yourself out. <laughs> so as Ronan has kind of blossomed over the years, uh, how many of the old descent control devices or older descent control devices do you guys have on a shelf somewhere gathering dust? We have eights, rescue eights. We've got brand new brake racks in bags, like not even assembled. You remember they used to come, you used to have to assemble them yourself? Yeah, wow. yeah. Yeah, we've got those. Um, we've got 540s, both the uni and omnidirectional ones. <laughs> uh, the old Roco Screamers got some of those. Wow. Um, yeah, I mean, and then you get into like the climbing world. I don't know if there isn't a climbing device that we don't have. I mean, I've still got the original old ATC, like the old tuber one before the guide style came out. Oh, wow. <laughs> right? Um and when you dig in deep into there, yeah, there's, you know, uh, like a fisk, a tuber. Oh, a fisk. Uh, nice. Yes. A fisk. Tower rescue tuber. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sky I, genie. Okay. Like, we're really kicking it down. <laughs> but 
but yeah, I mean, I'm one of those guys. I should really go and throw it out or put it up on a board somewhere. But it's like they just end up in these piles and the pile just gets bigger and bigger. A lot of it I turn over to Kevin and just let him use it for testing and like the older style pulleys and that sort of stuff. We'll turn it over to Kevin so he can just wreck it in testing and I don't have to worry about it anymore. But I just can't bring myself to throw out a perfectly good and functioning piece of equipment. Right. Sure. No, I, we're sure. the same way. I, you know, we, we run into these industrial clients that, uh, you know, we, we, we're, we stay in communication with them and they're like, Oh, I've you know, I saw this new piece of equipment and, you know, it's like, Hey, you know, we bought 15 of this other item five years ago, but now we want to buy 20 of this other item. And it's like, okay, well, what are you going to do with the 15 you already bought? Well, we're going to put those in long-term storage, or we might use those at some point, maybe some other time or whatever. But um, and hey, I'm I, I I buy new stuff. We 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 have a lot of new stuff in our gear caches, but I um I, I it's it's hard to let go of some of the older equipment, and we we have a fair bit of the same stuff that you're talking about on our shelves, and we do utilize it uh, for some testing and stuff like that too, but. I think if you asked, if you took a poll nationwide and you kind of dug deep about what was on everybody's closet, you'd figure out pretty quickly, like where, how much stuff there was. So you, the real, the real hope would be that you could recycle it. <laughs> well, this, here we go for Battleship 2023. One of the nights we should do retro, make everybody show up in like 70s <laughs> wear. That's a great, that's a great all old shit. Like you can't that's use anything new. Yeah, half inch, half inch five forties. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, half inch rope. We'll go five eights. Settling headlamps. We'll go the whole world. Everybody climbs on for cells or prussics. It'd be awesome. Yeah. My first rigging for rescue course in Yosemite, we had to do a uh, about a 75 foot climb using the prussic system, right? The oh, yeah. prussic system. And I was like, is he just here trying to hurt us? Like right, right. <laughs> Kevin didn't make us climb that far, but he did make us climb did, on Purcells. He did make us tie Purcells, too. Yeah, yeah we had to tie our own. What was that all about? Wow. Yeah, that was the whole thing. That goes back to that purist, back to the basics. So that's right. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. One other quick question. You had mentioned the SRT stuff, Shane, and I leave on a plane on Monday here over to Europe to do their technical rescue program for three weeks, and they still teach some SRT for victim access what's your thoughts like what's the breaking point there without getting too far down the rabbit hole of when srt is used and when it's not i think when there's an identity like if you can identify we're, we're kind of going through this right now with regard to terrain assessment so you know having a healthy understanding of the terrain that you're getting ready to either have to move through rig and or make access to the patient so if the experience of the practitioner is one that there's confidence that no mistake or at least very little mistakes can be made in terms of their own personal ability to be on that rope. The terrain is that, that it's, it's a navigable terrain that makes it uh, faster for somebody to access the patient. And given that that patient has some type of emergent uh, need, whatever that may be, say somebody isn't breathing, say somebody isn't conscious, and we've, we've deemed that we don't have discretionary time, then I think that the single rope access is fully applicable. And whether it's general industry um, or rescue, I think if you're talking about a, a life threat 
in a non-IDLH scenario where some where you might be able to make a difference if you got quick access to that patient, I think there's there's some applicability uh, to it for sure. Okay. Mark, you're well, I'm sorry, Mark. You're well familiar with our concept of rules of engagement that we've played uh, for a number of years now, and and we like to think that 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 concept, if we lay down some basic rules, like you make you call it SOP, call it SOG, whatever you want, but a rule of engagement concept that would open the door to this decision making with it, we like to think at least two competent people, um, or even maybe radio contact back to command. That I think this stuff is totally possible. Um, as long as it's used in context, right? Or as long as it's followed up with some diligence of some type. No, and I mean, I do love that with your, I mean, we've stolen your rules of engagement straight up, you know that. And uh, we talked about the SOGs a bit on the course this year where, and, and we've got ding down on it, marked down on it at Grimp Days because, you know, our team lead will go build a mechanical advantage. The standard go-to for us is two five to ones. We're running TTRS unless otherwise specified. We're building five to ones unless otherwise specified. Um, and it's just SOGs. And it just, you know, like you say, it starts to be able to fill some of those voids and help make some of those decisions. Right on. Yeah. So let me follow up on the social media thing, because I didn't really finish on that. Like okay. obviously um, it, it was meant to be an anchor evaluation concept, and I, I think we learned probably within the first couple months that it was kind of futile for the most part. Um, what we've taken from this little experiment is that anchor evaluation is all about your time and experience, whether it's in rope rescue, just in life in general, and how you understand interface of other components, you know, whether they're bolted, welded, mobile, it doesn't matter what it is. So that's a big takeaway. So I'm obviously not on that project anymore. I tr it really went nowhere with it. The post that I do put out now, if I can, and obviously Colin has asked me to try to make them more thought provoking. So that's kind of where I'm at now is I just, I'm, I'm happy to put stuff out there. I'm old enough in my career. Nobody's going to hurt my feelings. I like to put stuff out there that maybe sparks some thought in, in the folks that are up and coming and makes them think, you know, further outside the box. So that's really where I'm at with those posts at this point. If I take a beating in the meantime, I don't care. It doesn't matter. It gives us stuff to laugh about while we're drinking. Yeah, and it's not a, it's not, it's not an intentional, you know, it's it's not intentional in terms of like seeking out a place to build an anchor uh, for something just to to stir the the melting pot. But you know, all of these anchors that we build, we put live loads on, and we do have an evaluation criteria that we go through that's pretty stringent. And we, we have done some backyard testing on a lot of stuff that most people don't know about, including ladder rungs on ladder cages and on towers and on step bolts for tower rescue. And so we do have a little bit of beta on the backside. And I think that, you know, it, we, if you go to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of facilities across the country and you work in all of these different locations with all of these different types of industrial structures, and whether it's confined space, whether it's high angle, whether it's, you know, uh, some tower structure or whatever it is, no two anchors are created equal. And the reality is that availability drives a lot of what we do. Now, our evaluation process is a lot more stringent than that. But if I don't have the perfect anchor behind me and the emergency is presented in front of me, I have to use my skill set and my education to make a decision about whether it's reasonable based on the applied force of the system that you build to move forward. 
And, you know, I, I guess the crux of it is this, that is if, when we're doing it with live loads and we're doing it in training, that is proof load testing in the field. I mean, that that's exactly what it is. And you'll see it a lot of times where even students that are kind of new to this would say, oh yeah, I wasn't a hundred percent sure about that anchor system. And then over time, a few years later, they're like, they build more confidence. They build more, you know, from an information standpoint about what things will, will hold. And then, you know, obviously if there's a perfect anchor behind an, an emergency, then, then we're going to gravitate towards it. We're not going to intentionally build something that's unsafe if there's something that is far better that's in our grasp. It's interesting you bring up anchoring because, I mean, from what we see as well, anchoring is a huge, a huge crux in a lot of people's rigging is Absolutely. they're used to training in certain environments and they just they can't take a look and see other things to rig to and it, it does create issues out on scene and i get a bit flippant with it and i go you know people say well how long how strong is the anchor need to be what's your device slip at right flips at 12 kilonewtons i guess 13 should be in the money then <laughs> <laughs> That's a bit flippant and I'm not going to go down that path, but right. you know, it's, it is that thought process though. We, do we really need to have this 40 kilonewton bomber anchor sitting there? Are we putting 40 kilonewtons on it? And even if we do, the device is going to spin. Sure. One of my favorite comments from all the stuff I've done is more bomb proof. That's great. I love that one. <laughs> we need a more bomber proof. <laughs> I wish I could back up that bomb proof anchor with another bomb proof anchor. Make yeah. it more bomb <laughs> Exactly. Um, yeah, and it's, it's interesting that you run into those same concerns that we do in regards to it. Sure. Um, and there's a lot of stuff we see on social media as well with it, where it's like, you know, I, I wouldn't rig to that. Well, there's a lot of times that's all you get to rig to. Like, there, like you exactly. say, Shane, there is no other option here. Exactly. So, yeah, I'll add to that too, Mark, that, again, we're not just out here goofing off being crazy. I mean – Shane and I have been extremely fortunate for the past 30 years. We've moved over probably, I would easily a thousand loads a year over a live a rail. Those are live bodies for real going over the edge, just like you have Mark. And you, you know, you pick up some thought process there. That's probably uncomparable to a normal look at typical anchorage. So there, there, this is not just, you know, us being crazy and silly trying to get somebody hurt. There's a lot of thought that goes into this whole thing. Well, the, the other thing too, is it's like, if you're, if some of this stuff, if, if we're looking at an anchor that has, that's welded, it's of a certain metal thickness, it's in, in a place where it's, uh, you know, a, a desirable anchor for whatever the, the training or the emergency is. And a lot, a lot of folks would look over there and say, oh gosh, I don't know if I'd use that. Well, if you change your environment a little bit and now all of a sudden I'm on the banks of a river trying to perform a swift water rescue, or I'm in a cave trying to perform a cave rescue, there's nothing welded there. There's nothing that's man-made there. These are all natural anchors. And, you know, I, we've rigged a, a lot of cliff rescues to smaller diameter trees where we collectively tried to take software and make some kind of load distributing anchor. But, I, you know, it, it's incredibly hard if you're not a welder or if you're not an engineer to look at these things and, and have 100% confidence in it but what I would offer is that nobody knows unless it's engineered or certified what the anchor will hold. It's your guess versus my guess. 
And then I think ultimately, here's what you're going to have to rely on, and, and that's field experience. How much field experience does the practitioner have building anchors in an environment that's applicable to the type of emergencies that they're going to respond to? And that's what we try to build in the field at these, at these facilities when we're doing the training. And you even mentioned engineers, and I've been on some rope access jobs on wooden trestle bridges where I was told initially, yeah, feel free to anchor to that. And about an hour later, the engineer came back and go, you might want to move your anchoring off of that. <laughs> <laughs> the last hour, it seemed to be fine, though. <laughs> right. Awesome. Well, anything else, gentlemen? Um, I'll throw one thing out there, Mark. Sure. Shane and I have been toying with this for probably – three or four years. Um, I think I've made you aware at some point, but we're kind of thinking about a West side of the country battleship concept class. Um, it definitely will not be on a battleship. It'll probably be on a large chunk of concrete somewhere in the desert that's relatively famous. Um, but I'm not let the cat completely out of the bag, but we are going down that pathway and, and, and uh, if things work out, we're gonna try to make that happen. Um, it, it won't be as 100% dramatic as the typical North Carolina battleship. It'll probably be a little bit more small party related, um, but still follow those same long hour concepts and maybe just with a smaller crowd and a few less instructors, um, but might be a really cool thing to do. If, you, if I remember correctly, there's going to be a little bit of an exposure thing there too. <laughs> yeah, maybe it's a little bit. So, no, that's excellent. And I mean, uh, I certainly think that's what people are looking for. When we talk about these anchors, we talk about trinkets, we talk about purists as far as rigging. People need that experience. And the only way they get it is to go to different environments and do rescue. Absolutely. Um, I'll, I, one thing I didn't even think about, Mark, I'll throw one more bone out there. And man, this is for you. This is for the president of our company. The battleship is not a profit center for us. Um, it's, it's usually a loss and we actually do good if we even can manage to break even and that's a struggle. So we're all of our instructors, including yourself, man, we're doing this out of a passion that we have for rescue to try to share this with other people. Um, we make money on our day to day, but the battleship, you know, for a fact is not a profit center. And I think that's a big deal. A lot of that, I find those higher end courses, our RTR, for example, doesn't make a lot of money when you look at and go. We, we ruined two ropes, two ASAPs, two lanyards, whatnot on that program. And I mean, that's just the start of it. How many slings and whatnot. And people go, oh, it's a sling. Well, when you're ruined 10 of them, well, there's 250 bucks, a couple of ASAPs. Well, there's another four or 500 bucks. You know, you blink an eye, you've just thrown a thousand dollars worth of gear away. You throw a couple of ropes in there. And I mean, it's the same thing with the battleship, but I do feel a lot of times, I think like you, that People need to see this. People need that experience and they need those examples. Totally true. I'm a, I'm a graduate of your program, RTR. I think that's a great thing you got going and we totally support that. Appreciate it. Um, anything else? I mean, I'm enjoying the conversation. I, my questions got answered really quick and I can. Uh, we appreciate you having us on. Mark. We, we, we greatly appreciate you taking the time to, to talk with us, Mark and we uh, we really in, we enjoy your company, so we need to we need to meet up somewhere soon and and uh, talk shop. Well, I'd like to do this live somewhere. Get your crew together, and I mean, if it has to wait till next January, it has to wait till next January. But uh, maybe even out of nighters and get all of us yeah. in for an hour and just get that mic in the middle, omnidirectional, and just have a conversation about rescue and throw it up on this because uh, I know yeah. the 
those um, particular podcasts do get a lot of feedback where people just pick up on that conversation. So, yeah, that's cool, man. That'd yeah, be that'd awesome. be a neat, neat thing. Yeah. Well, you guys have a good night. I know you're uh, out and about in the hotel, so I'm sure you're hitting probably Mexican or sushi in the next <laughs> 30 minutes here. That's it. <laughs> and uh, right. probably be a couple beers had, and I'll uh, raise a pint for you tonight and uh, for a cheers, and we will chat later. Absolutely. Right. Cheers, Same Mark. Same to you, Mark. Take All right. care. Bye-bye.